Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Tonight we'll be in 1 Kings 11 through 16. And uh, we're taking these big chunks, looking at the, the larger story. And, and that's why I take these big chunks like this for these Bible studies, uh, is to get an overview. And um, it, we would be a very long time in books like First and Second Kings if we were to uh, sort of do a detailed chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study, which is important to do, and I encourage you to do that uh, in your own time, too. But also here, it would take a, a tremendous long time. What we're, what we're doing with these studies on Wednesday, we did Leviticus, and now we're in First and Second Kings, is sort of getting the overarching storyline. Because when it comes to biblical literacy, it seems like the, the biggest problem people have with biblical literacy and understanding the Bible is just what the different books and the stories are about. So you come to books like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and you can kind of glaze over. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to one of those chapters, two of those chapters tonight, where people get there, and you just sort of, sort of sign up, you know, check out. Like, I don't, I don't know what this has to do with me. I don't know how to apply this. I don't know where I am in the story. I don't know where Jesus is in the story. And you can get lost. Same thing with Leviticus. Leviticus was a hard book. Uh, but we take these sort of bird's eye view uh, looks at these books to be able to break down the plain story that's running through the whole text, see the big picture. And so when you go back and do maybe a deeper study or listen to a study or watch a study or read a book or just read through the text yourself, you have kind of the pieces to put it together as you're going through. So tonight we're looking at this big picture of 1 Kings 11 through 16. And 1 Kings 11 through 16 marks a downward turn for Solomon and the nation. A downward turn for Solomon and the nation. And the three sort of components that we're going to kind of see through these chapters. Uh, number one, as we get to the end of Solomon's reign and the decline of his kingdom and his personal decline also. Uh, Solomon's foreign wives lead him into idolatry. Solomon's foreign wives, over 700 of them, <laughs> lead Solomon into idolatry. Because of that, God, in judgment, divides the kingdom. Whereas you had one united kingdom of Israel under Saul, David, and then Solomon, and then partially under Rehoboam, you have a division of the kingdom as a result of Solomon's sins and the sins of the people. Then we'll begin to see part of the pattern that will go on for the rest of the Old Testament, and that is God raising up prophets to call the people to repentance. If you remember the book of Judges, we went through that cycle. God blesses the people. The people turn away from God. God calls them to repentance. God judges them. They end up repenting, God blesses them. They turn away from God, and we go through that cycle again and again. That's the same cycle we go through once we get to the prophets. And uh, if you look on the one handout I gave you that has the two charts uh, with the kings, look on, well, depending on which way you're holding it, look on the side that has all the colors. That, that shows you the overlapping kings of Israel and Judah. And in the middle, it shows you when the prophets, the biblical prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, it shows you in that list where they ministered. Okay, so that's very helpful. And, and we'll see the kickoff of that cycle this week, and we'll get there in full next week with Elijah and then Elisha. But this week, we begin to see that pattern. The people fall away. God sends a prophet or prophets to call them to repentance. Your study guide sums up these chapters this way. God's people pursue idolatry even as God warns them of the destruction that will inevitably result. God's people pursue idolatry even as God warns them of the destruction 
that will inevitably result. Let's turn our attention to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, and now let's look at some of these opening verses as we begin to read of the downgrade of Solomon's kingdom. 1 Kings 11 verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, the Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. His wives turned away his heart. Solomon's lust, I mean, I don't know if we could chalk it up to anything more than lust. Solomon's lust would turn his heart from the Lord. If you just, if you have a Bible where you can just thumb through, don't, don't scroll all the way back on your electronic Bibles, but if you just could look back at 1 Kings 3, verse 3. We remember at the beginning of Solomon's reign, 1 Kings 3, 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Solomon loved the Lord. It's interesting now that we come to this turn in Solomon's reign that we begin with a different phrase. Not Solomon loved the Lord, but now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Chapter 3, verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walked after his father David. We come to chapter 11, verse 1, the author is signaling to us, as he has a few times by now, signaling to us that something bad is about to happen. Uh, there's, there's a turn going here that's not good for Solomon. It's not good for the people because we go from loving God to loving many foreign women. And this was expressly forbidden by God, and it's quoted here, Deuteronomy 7, 3, uh, 3 through 4. But he quotes it here, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. We went through uh, this in Judges, too. Remember with Samson chasing after the foreign women? And back in Deuteronomy, God had told his people, When you go into the land, do not enter into marriage with them, nor they with you, because they will lead you into idolatry. They do not worship me, they worship false gods, and they will lead you down that same path. That's why God forbade it. Now, this passage, um, texts like this have been used wrongly, wrongly to justify sort of a bigotry and racism that's associated with interracial marriage. And people have misused verses like this to say that interracial marriages are sinful or they're wrong because, after all, the Bible tells them not to marry foreign women. Uh, well, on one hand, we've got to remember that God is talking to his people, the Israelites, the Jews, his nation, and the specific reason not to marry foreign women, because there's plenty of examples of Old Testament and New Testament people marrying other races, okay? There's plenty of examples of that that are not forbidden by God. What God forbids here is the idolatry that is associated with that. He doesn't say don't marry foreign women because they're beneath you or because they're somehow lesser than you. He says don't marry them because they're going to turn your heart away from me and towards other gods. Uh, so there's absolutely no justification for any sort of uh, prejudice or bigotry against interracial marriage. And uh, these verses being used like that is, is just a, a bad interpretation and, and wrong altogether. So we have this whole turn in Solomon's reign from loving the Lord, from chasing after the Lord, walking after his father David, to what now? Loving the foreign women and their gods. And just as sure as God said it happened, it would happen, verse 5, it happens. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Verse 6, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father has done. If you're underlining, circling, underline, circle, star, verse 6. Solomon walked in the ways of his father at first, but now it expressly says he is walking off course. Solomon walked in the ways of his father David at first, but is now walking 
off course. Chapter 3, verse 3, he loved the Lord. He walked after the ways of his father David. Chapter 11, he loved foreign women, and he is not following the Lord as his father David did. His heart was turned away to other gods. His heart was turned away to other gods. And so we come to that indictment that you circled, highlighted, underlined, starred, verse 6. And I ask you to do that because you're going to begin to see that come up as a pattern through this book. We're going to have this sort of report card at the end of every king and every reign that he either did what was right or he did what was evil. Sometimes there's a mix. Sometimes you see he did what was right, only he didn't destroy these altars or these idols or something. We're going to get that little criteria check mark after every king, and it begins with Solomon. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the indictment against Solomon at the end of his reign is that he did evil, he is not following the Lord, and he has chased after foreign gods under the influence of these foreign wives. The pinnacle of this is verse 7. Solomon doesn't just chase after them or he doesn't just allow the worship of these false gods. He participates by building a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. If you know anything about your Old Testament history, the book of Judges, the book of Joshua, of all the idols and of all the idol worship that was abominable to God, Molech was at the top. The child sacrifice, the child burning God that these foreign Canaanite people sacrificed their children to. Nothing was more abominable to God than that. And here is Solomon building a place of worship for Chemosh, and for Molech. And he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. The indictment the Lord brings against Solomon is that he was evil, he turned away from the Lord, and he chased after foreign gods. The Lord responds to this in verses 19 or 9 through 13 in judgment. Verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart torn, turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice, commanded him not to go after these false gods. Down in verse 11, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. God says in judgment, I will tear the kingdom from him. I will tear the kingdom from him. What follows then in verses 14 through 25 uh, is God raising up enemies against Israel. God raising up enemies against Israel. Verse 14 is noteworthy. 1 Kings eleven fourteen, The Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad, the Edomite. You might know who the Edomites are descendants of. Anybody? Come on now. Edom means red. Jennifer, do you know? The Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Good job. The, the descendants of Esau. And this, we're going all the way back in Israel's history to that conflict between Jacob and Esau, how Jacob stole the birthright. And they, and they you know, rectified everything, but from then on, Esau is this example of this rebellion against God, all the way into the book of Hebrews, this rebellion against God where we sell our birthright, we sell what is ours for a pot of stew. Remember how Esau did that? The author of Hebrews uses that as an example of those who turn away from the living God. And it's this Esau descendant who now turns against uh, the king, the people of Israel. God also raises up, verse 23, an adversary, Razan, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadadezar, king of Zobah. Sounds like some Star Wars stuff, doesn't it? But uh, God raises up these two foreign kings, these two foreign nations as a sort of adversary. Again, go back to the book of Judges. 
It's that same pattern we saw that when the people rebel, God stirs up the enemies of the people to come and attack them and assault them and persecute them in order to judge them and to punish them for them turning away from God. God's doing the same thing here. It is God who raises up these enemies. So whatever strength and whatever power they have to come against God's people, it's only because God gave it to them. And it's only because God allowed it and permitted it and ordained it. God says through this prophetic picture we have here in verses 26 through 33, I'll read that to you, that he will divide the kingdom. Uh, Look over, yeah, starting around verse 26. Actually, go down to verse 29. At that time when Jeroboam, Jeroboam being a servant in the house of the king, And remember, God has said, I will take it away from you and give it to one of your servants. At that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now, Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him, and watch, he tore it into twelve pieces. What is the significance of twelve? And... this part of the Bible 12 tribes good job so there's that picture 12 tribes and he says to Jeroboam not Rehoboam who is the king right but Jeroboam take for yourself 10 pieces for thus says the Lord the God of Israel behold I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes so he tears this new garment into 12 pieces gives Jeroboam 10 of them as a sign that the Lord is going to take from Solomon 10 of the tribes, half of his country, and half of the nation. He's going to give it to this new king, whoever this Jeroboam is. The nation had followed Solomon's idolatry, and that's why this has happened. Look at verse 33. Ahijah the prophet says, Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Shemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. So this prophet Ahijah says to this servant Jeroboam, the kingdom will be stripped from Solomon, ten tribes will be torn from him, and I will give you ten, and you will rule over them. Solomon will be left with those two. Actually, his, uh, his son Rehoboam will be left with those two. We'll get to that in a minute. And this is all because the people had fallen into idolatry, following their leader, following their king, Solomon, who because of these foreign wives had begun to chase after and worship false gods. This is a shocking judgment um, because the people thought, going back to the promise God made, I mean, it, it makes sense that... David, I'm going to put one of your sons on your throne. He will reign forever. The kingdom will have no end. There'll be righteousness and justice and peace and glory. And for a while under David, it looked like that was going to happen. Even for a while under Solomon, didn't it look like it was going to happen? He builds the temple. It's glorious. It's magnificent. People are coming from all the nations. Remember, the queen of Sheba comes, and she's she's breathless at what she sees in the glory of Solomon's kingdom. And now you must be looking at this as a person in the kingdom or as Solomon himself, and you must be wondering, what happened? Where where did it all go? Well, he chased after these foreign women. He chased after their foreign gods. He worshipped idols. And so God indicts him and lays down this harsh, shocking judgment to the people. No glory, no peace, no righteousness, no kingdom, only destruction and division of the kingdom. But if you read through this section, you will see that that is not all that the Lord says. Um, Look there in verses 12 through 13. In the midst of judgment, where do we see mercy? Your question asks you there. Look at verses 12 through 13. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days. He says to Solomon, because of my love for David, because of my promise to him, I will not divide the kingdom while you are living. But I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, 
But I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And now look down at verses 34 through 39. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. It's funny how the Lord, in, in this serious shocking, harsh, dire series of judgments. I'm going to divide the kingdom. I'm going to tear it from you. No glory, no majesty. I'm going to divide it and tear it from you, but not all of it. I'm going to divide it and I'm going to tear it from you and I'm going to judge you, but not while you're still alive. I'm going to divide it. I'm going to tear it. I'm going to judge you, but because of David... I'm going to preserve one tribe. Now we keep going back to that promise. You see, see how many times he mentions David? Both to uh, Solomon, but also then to uh, Jeroboam. He keeps going back to David because of David, for David's sake. The promise I made to David, God says I'm going to keep those promises. And for his sake, there will be preserved one tribe, the tribe of Judah, and then partially the tribe of Benjamin in the south, while all the other ten tribes up north. He says, I will afflict David, I will afflict Judah, but what does he say in verse 39? But not forever. God will not completely destroy his people. He will preserve a remnant, and his judgment will not last forever. Even in the midst of this judgment, we see mercy. As we come into chapter 12, we see the division of the kingdom beginning with the death of Solomon. In this uh, emerging pattern, Solomon dies and another king is raised up, Rehoboam. Verses 41 through 43 of chapter 11 say that now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So uh, circle those three verses, star, underline. That's another pattern we're going to see throughout this book. The one pattern is going to be the report card. When we get to the end of a king's reign, he did what was evil, he did what was right. Whatever the score is, we'll see that pattern. The next pattern we see is this one. They lived, they reigned, they died. They lived, they reigned, they died. And the author wants us to see that pattern again and again and again. Here we have the death of Solomon and Rehoboam, his son, reigning in his place. We're not going to read this whole narrative, but in um, the, the opening part of chapter 12, let's just say verses 1 through 15, or verses 1 through 24, we have this episode with Rehoboam where he's coming into contact with people that did not much care for David. And if they cared for David, they didn't like Solomon. Uh, for whatever reason, these people complained that they had been put into forced labor under Solomon, that his workload, his taxes were heavy. He was a harsh ruler. And there's indication that in the last part of Solomon's life that was true. Just as he was chasing after foreign gods and foreign women, his heart was being led away from the Lord. His heart was also being taken away from his people. Remember when God appeared to him at first? What did he ask for? I want wisdom. I want guidance for the sake of your people. But now we have this indication here in the opening part of chapter 12 that he had turned on his people. And he was lording over them, had become a taskmaster. And so Rehoboam begins to hear these complaints against his father Solomon. And basically the people are like, what are you going to do about it, Rehoboam? We didn't really care for your father all that much. How are you going to do? 
So in verse 6, Rehoboam took counsel, it says, with the old men. Always a good thought. Let's go ask the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father. He says, how do you advise me to answer this people? Verse 7, if you will be a servant, they say to this people today, and serve them and speak good words to them, then when you answer them, they will be your servants forever. Rehoboam is maybe rightly incensed at this ingratitude that he perceives. They're complaining about Solomon, his father, and he doesn't know how to respond. And these wise elders say, no matter what your opinions, Rehoboam, speak tenderly, speak kindly, be a good, gentle shepherd leader for the people, and they will respect you and serve you. Verse 8 But he abandoned the counsel of the old men, and he took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him. So he goes to his peers. I don't have the time or the patience for what the old people say. Let me ask my peers, these young, rambunctious men that I grew up with. Verse 9, they say, what do you advise me? Um, Verse 10, the young men who had grown, grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. You shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So he decides to go this route. Sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, Go to the old wise counselors and they say, speak tenderly, speak lovingly, and they'll follow you and they'll serve you. He goes to his young counselors, his peers, and what do they say? No, you don't need any of that soft-footed stuff. Go in there and lay down the law. Solomon was this hard, I'm going to be even harder on you. And he rejects the counsel of these elders. Rehoboam rejects the wise counsel of the elders And the kingdom, because of this foolishness, the kingdom is divided. Jeroboam, in verse 12, goes and tells the people exactly what his younger counselors told him to say. And in verse 16, it says, When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, he did not hear their complaints, he responded harshly. They say, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, they say to themselves, let's go to our own nation. Look now to your own house, David. You see the division begin to occur because Rehoboam went in with a heavy hand, a hard heart, bitter, angry words, not listening to wisdom as his father Solomon did at first, but going in rashly and harshly, He divides the kingdom. And the only people, the only tribe that stuck with him, just as the Lord said, the only tribe that stuck with with him was Judah. All the other tribes said, let's go do our own thing, form our own nation, and form our own kingdom. God fulfills his word and raises Jeroboam to lead Israel's rebellion. It says in verse 15, the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. Remember what Ahijah, when he tore his clothes in front of Jeroboam and gave him ten pieces, what he said to Jeroboam is so that that might be fulfilled. And in verses 25 through 33, we see Israel's rebellion complete under their new king, Jeroboam. So now, whereas you had one united kingdom under Saul, under David, under Solomon, and then partially under Rehoboam, because of Rehoboam's foolishness and harshness, the kingdom is divided. They reject his kingship. The only ones who stick with him are the tribes of the tribe of Judah, while all the other ten, ten tribes follow Jeroboam to form what we know as the nation, then the northern kingdom of Israel. God fulfills his word and raises this competing king, this competing kingdom, and the kingdom is divided. How do we see a reversal of Israel's story here? Think about where we've come from. We came from Egypt and slavery. We came to the conquest of the promised land. And what did God say? Be holy, be distinct, be separate from them. Don't marry, don't intermarry, don't serve their gods. 
And God gave them a king, a kingdom. He gave them glory. He gave them honor. And now, starting with Solomon, we begin to see all that go backwards, don't we? We begin to see Solomon chasing after foreign wives, chasing after foreign gods, all the victories of the conquest being reversed. And then we get to these kings, and instead of a united, glorious kingdom like it was under Saul and David and Solomon, especially David and Solomon, now we have a divided kingdom, a divided people. We have civil wars. And in verses 25 through 33, perhaps the most egregious of these reversals, Verse 28, Jeroboam took counsel, and he made two calves of gold. He said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Jeroboam feared, it says in the beginning parts of these verses, he feared that if the people of Israel, now a separate nation under his rulership, right, if they keep going back to Jerusalem to worship, what are they going to keep thinking about? Jerusalem. The temple, Solomon, David. And he's afraid that as they keep going back there to the temple in Jerusalem in Judah to worship, that their hearts are going to be turned away from him, away from his rule, and they're going to be turned back to David. And they're going to remember the good old days and the promises God made through David and Solomon and the glory of the temple and the sacrifices. So what does he do? Well, we'll just create our own system of worship. You've gone to Jerusalem long enough. So here are two golden calves for you to worship. And look at what he says in verse 28. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Who does this sound like? What do you say? Aaron. You know, it's interesting that in the story of the golden calf from Exodus 32, you should write that down, Exodus, Exodus 32. The people are at the base of Sinai. Remember, they're waiting on Moses to come back down, and they get impatient. Where is Moses? Where is God? We're tired. We want to move on. We want to get to the promised land. Aaron, make us gods that we can serve them. Make us gods to lead us. Oftentimes, people think that Aaron was making an image of a false god, that they were worshiping some cow god because he made a golden calf. That's not what Aaron says, is it? That's not what Jeroboam says, is it? What does he say? He doesn't say, this is some different God. He says, these are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. What did Aaron say? This is the God that brought you out of Egypt. It wasn't that they were trying to worship a different God. They were trying to worship the one true God in a way that he had expressly forbidden Commandment number two, you shall not make a graven image to bow down and to worship it. Remember, God says, you did not see my face. You saw no form. So don't go trying to be like the other nations and make idols and images out of me. You can't do it because you don't know what I look like. But nevertheless, here they are. We reject the temple. We reject Jerusalem. We reject God's way. And now we want to do it our way. So why not just make some golden calves, call them Yahweh, here's the God who brought you out of Egypt, and let's worship there. All of this a reversal as Israel goes from glory back to chasing after foreign gods, back to idolatry, and in a sense, spiritually, because they're being oppressed, back to slavery, back to bondage under the judgment of God. The people were rebellious and idolatrous. They had squandered God's promises and brought about his judgment. Nevertheless, God is sovereign in it all. Look at verse 15 of chapter 12. I don't know if you you caught this detail or not. When Rehoboam refused to listen to the old counselors, when he took the stupid advice of his young gun counselors and he divided the kingdom, it says in verse 15, the people did not listen, or he did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. 
we don't have time to unpack all the theology of this tonight, though we, we have, if you listen in our sermons and Bible studies, we kind of try to do this sometimes. But it's interesting to think about that Rehoboam was sinning. He was sinful. This was all because of Solomon's idolatry. There was nothing righteous or just about any of this. And yet when the author inserts his theological understanding about what's going on, he wants us to remember that none of this is outside of God's sovereign control. And every last little thing that happened, every last thing, down to Rehoboam rejecting the wise counsel and accepting the stupid counsel to the division of the kingdom, all of it, it says, was a, a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. Was Rehoboam sinful? Absolutely. Is he responsible for his sinful actions? Yes, God judges him for them. Is God in control and working his plan even through the sinful actions of men? Now listen, because you'll hear people say that God can turn what we do. Isn't that how we often quote Genesis 50 verse 20 something when, when Joseph and his brothers are there? And he says, you meant this for evil, but God, and we oftentimes, it's that the Mandela effect, we remember it wrong. And we say, you meant it for evil, but God turned it for good. That's not what the text says. It doesn't say that God was doing this thing, oh, until this happened. Oh, there, but I can still do it this way. I'll turn it for good. It doesn't say that. It says, God meant it for, or you, the devil meant, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Not turned it, not changed it, not even used it, but meant it. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. These people are responsible for their sinful actions, but God is meaning it the whole time for his own plan, his own purpose, and his own glory. In verses, or chapters 13 through 14, we see the beginning of this pattern of the prophets, that God raises prophets to confront the kings. And one of the first instances we see in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, is this prophet from Judah who comes to curse. He comes to curse one of these false places of worship, one of these false altars at Bethel. Interesting, the word Bethel means the house of God. Bet-el, the house of God. And yet, Jeroboam has turned it into a house for idols. And this prophet says, it says, The man of God came, and in verse 2, he speaks to the altar now. O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you, the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. I mean, that's a terrifying prophecy, isn't it? A son will be born. A king will be raised up named Josiah from David. Sounds a lot like that other prophecy, right? David's son, one of his sons will be raised up. And he will sacrifice not in worship on your false altars, but he will sacrifice in judgment. Not offering the blood of animals to your false gods, but offering the bodies of your false priests on your false altar. Verses 4 and following, Jeroboam tries to have the prophet seized, but as soon as he stretches out his hand against him in verse 5, it says it dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. It had that, there was a paralysis or something that happened to his hand where he could not bring it back to himself. God cursed his hand in that moment. Now, he reverses course. He sees what happens. He wants the use of his hand back. He realizes there's something to this prophet. There's something to his prophecy, and he wants the use of his hand back. So he reverses course, says, okay, 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 we'll listen to you. We'll listen to you, prophet. And as he does, his hand is restored, and he invites this prophet to come into his house and to eat bread and drink water and to spend some time. But the prophet refuses the king's invitation by a command of God. Verse 9, it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. This weird little episode, the king's heart is seemingly turned. We have an indication here, though, that it wasn't really turned. 
He was trying to flatter, trying to bribe the prophet maybe into reversing his decision. After all, this is going to look bad on me as the king. I kind of made all this stuff happen. I kind of set up these temples to these false gods for these people. They expect me to uphold this system that I put in place. Maybe if I get the prophet into my house and feed him and give him wine and water and rest, he'll reverse. God will change his mind and we'll just all go back to normal except the prophet refuses. And in the wisdom of God, he kept the prophet from going into that man's house. The command of the Lord told him, you shall not go in and eat or drink. But, in verses 11 and following, this same prophet also fails. And he falls into disobedience and is judged by God. If I could just tell you the story quickly. He meets another old prophet, and in verse 16, uh, verse 15, the other prophet says to this prophet, come home with me and eat bread. Sound familiar, right? Come on in, eat bread, take a rest. This same prophet, verse 16, the one who had refused Jeroboam, he says, I may not return with you or go in, neither shall I eat bread or drink water in this place. Verse 17, For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, and I quote, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return there by the way you came. Quoting exactly what he said from verse 9, indicating that it was the Lord who said this verbatim to him, this same command, whether it's this wicked king or so-called prophet, the word of the Lord says, You shall not go in and eat or drink, period. But this prophet, the other prophet, says, verse 18, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Just so happens as that prophet is returning home, the prophet who disobeyed, the prophet who is tricked by the other so-called prophet into coming in and disobeying God, He gets attacked by a lion, but the lion doesn't devour him, nor does the lion devour his donkey. He slings him to the ground, he's dead, and he leaves him there as a sign of what happens to people who disobey God. Now this is telling us something. It seems like one of those random episodes that the author just got carried away. Oh, I know this story that happened. It's really weird. You won't believe it. Here's how it goes. But there is a point to this. Not even these prophets, not even these prophets are exempt from God's word. Whether it's God's word to a king that he must obey, God's word to his people that they must obey, or God's word through his very mouthpieces, the prophets, they must also obey. Big political phrase we hear all over the news these days, no one is above the law. You remember this? Every day, no one is above the law. Certainly applies to the law of God. And this word comes to this prophet. He quotes it twice. He knows exactly what God says. He knows the exact words. He knows the exact order. And yet he disobeys, just like the kings are doing, just like the people are doing. So we're seeing this all over apostasy from the kings to the people to the prophets of disobedience to God. And not even the prophets are exempt from this disobedience. Look at verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil ways. Even after this, even after this sign of the prophet himself being uh, killed by this lion, Jeroboam still did not turn away from his evil ways. But he made priests for the high places, again from among all the people, And anyone he ordained to be priest of the high places, and this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, underlined star, circle, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the the face of the earth. So you see the point. What God was illustrating through the prophet was the reality that was going to happen to Jeroboam's kingdom. It was going to be cut off and destroyed. So we come into chapter 14, we see the end of Jeroboam's reign promised because of his great sin. Because of his sin, because of his idolatry, 
his kingdom comes to an end. Look at uh, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes, but you have done evil above all who were before you. Circle that, start. You've done evil above all who were before you. And have gone and made for yourselves other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger. Therefore, behold, verse 10, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Nothing, nothing uncertain or unclear about the words there, is there? Jeroboam's end is nigh. His child dies of a sickness that the prophet refuses to heal. And in verses 19 through 20, circle, underline, star, here's this pattern again. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. So how do we sum up all that? Jeroboam lived, he reigned, it was pretty bad, and he died. Again, king is raised up, king falls, king dies. The southern kingdom is not exempt from this, as Rehoboam's weak leadership leads Judah into idolatry. Verses 1 through, 21 through 28 um, specifically, look at verses 23 and 24. For all the good that Rehoboam did, they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram, that is, poles to the gods, like uh, monuments, on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. There's that reversal again. Just as you came into this land and drove all this junk out, now you're engaging in it all again. The high places, the false altars, the false gods, the idols, here you are worshiping them again. So just as bad as the north was, the south wasn't any better off. Idolatry, sin, rebellion. And we begin to see these patterns emerging with the death of Jeroboam. He lived, he reigned, he died. Look at verses 29 through 31. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam in the south and all that he did, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was a war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Namah the Ammonite. And Abijam, his son, reigned, son reigned in his place. Again, to sum it up, he lived, he reigned, he died. We see these patterns, that same cycle begin to emerge again and again and again. Verses 15, sorry, I always do that. Chapters six, 15 through 16, we see these, uh, the series of kings that reign over these two kingdoms as all-out civil war. Verse 15, ver, uh, chapter 15, verse 6, and then... Uh, Chapter 15, verses 16 through 24, civil war begins to erupt. I want you to notice this, and we're going to skim through these two, because this is, this is where we start reading, and if you're just reading through the Bible and you're trying to you know, really get something spiritual and beneficial out of it, it's not going to be in these chapters, okay? It's not going to be here unless you're just really, really studying. Verse 3 of chapter 15 um, he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. There's the report card. Bad king. Verse 7, the rest of the acts of Abijam and all he did, are they not written in the Chronicles? Verse 8, Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa's son reigned in his place. So again, you have the report card. Bad king, idolatry, he lived, he reigned, he died. Uh, verse 9, or chapter Chapter 15, verse 11. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. There's a good one. Thumbs up. 
as David his father had done. He put away altars. He put away false gods. But verse 24, just in case you thought he was the one, Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with the fathers in the city of David his father, and Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his place. The good king, he, he put away some of the idols and the altars. Maybe he's the one. Maybe this is the son of David that is coming to reign over all things forever, glory and majesty in the kingdom. But then he dies just like every other king did. And you can circle verse 26, verse 31. Nadab did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verses 31 through 32, he died. Verses 33 through 34, Basha reigns in Israel. Verse 34, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then in chapter 16, verse 5, Basha dies. Verse 6, actually, chapter 16, verse 6, Basha dies. Verse 8, Elah is raised up in Israel to reign. Verse 14, Elah dies. Zimri is raised up to reign, verse 19, because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed, verse 20, he dies. Now what we begin to see, though, as this pattern continues to go on, verses 25 through 28, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, And he did more evil than all who were before him. Circle, star, underline. Verse 28, Omri dies. And to Omri, verse 30, is born Ahab, who now reigns over Israel in the north. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. So what what do we keep seeing? Not just evil, but this one was the worst. And then Ahab, oh no, He's the worst. <laughs> but then and Ahab will go on to reign for 22 years, and we'll read more about him next week. But you begin to see this pattern and this cycle that emerges where each one is worse than the one before. Multiple kings reign over Israel. Civil wars erupt, and things are progressively worse. Things are progressively worse. And so when we think about the destructive consequences of sin, number one, we see them on the individual. Solomon chases after foreign wives and foreign gods, but all the other people follow his example. And every successive king, remember I said it a couple weeks ago, the story of the kings is the story of the people. And just as much as God is highlighting the idolatry and sinfulness of the kings, the underlying story is the rebellion and the idolatry and the sinfulness of the people. And just as God brings judgment on these kings... God promises judgment to his people. Let me read through these last blanks uh, very quickly as we kind of encapsulate everything under the heading of the gospel. What does all this have to do with me? What does it have to do with Jesus? How do I, how do I go to texts like this and find Jesus and the gospel? Where, where is the good news in any of this? Because it doesn't seem to be present. True, the constant sin for Israel and Judah is idolatry. And we could say this is the root of all sin. From from the very beginning, it was the root of sin. Lucifer, in the very first sin, said what? I'll exalt myself to be God. Idolatry. Well, then Adam and Eve, when, when Eve saw the fruit, it was good for the eyes. It was desired to make one wise. The serpent said, you'll be like God. Idolatry. Here's a shocker for you tonight. Anything less, anything less than full devotion and obedience to God is idolatry. It's easy for us to read these stories, to read these accounts, and to put ourselves outside of that story. That wouldn't be me. He's a wicked king. That's not me. Those people are stupid. That's not me. They rebelled against God. I would never do that. Anything less than full devotion and obedience to God is idolatry. So where does that leave you? From the kings to the people to the prophets. I should have wrote 
to you, all fail. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Time and again, we see God's sovereign faithfulness to his promises. No matter how bad the people are, no matter how bad things get, God stays faithful. And we keep going back to David and the promise that God made. No matter what happens, God goes back there. He remembers, he knows, he's faithful. Even in his judgment, God promises to preserve Judah as a lamp, a light. Even though the pattern we see again and again and again is sin, idolatry, and death. God promises a ruler in the middle of all that to preserve Judah as a lamp and to raise up a ruler from Judah, from David, who will reign in complete righteousness and justice forever. Isaiah 9, 7, the government shall be upon his shoulders and he shall reign with righteousness and justice forevermore. As we come to the Gospels, it is into our darkness and our idolatry and our sin that God sends his light, Jesus Christ. In him, John says, was life, and that life was the light of men. The darkness tried to overcome it, but it can't. And John says, as Jesus was coming into the world, it was the very light of God that was coming into the world. The lamp of God, a remnant preserved by God, was coming into the world. Jesus, as our true prophet, priest, and king, is the only one who ever lived in complete obedience to God. If you came to that and said, man, if, any, if anything less than full devotion and obedience to God is idolatry, then I'm an idolater. And you're an idolater, and you're an idolater, and we're all sinners, and we're all in the same camp as these kings and these people and these wicked prophets. But there's Jesus, who in every way was like we are, yet without sin. All of the death and all of the judgment that we merited was laid on him. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our worship, though imperfect, is acceptable to God in Christ through our union with him as we pray in his name as we worship God in him and through him and by him by the power of his Holy Spirit the Bible says our worship is then made acceptable we are made acceptable to God through him lastly unlike these kings Jesus will reign and we with him forever Revelation eleven fifteen. when one of those seals is open, what, what does it say? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign. You could sing it, couldn't you? The hallelujah chorus. He shall reign forever and ever. You begin to see how God paints these patterns all the way from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The king and the reign and the sinfulness, the sacrifices, it all ties together in this beautiful story of redemption with Jesus who is our King of kings and Lord of lords who reigns forever in righteousness and perfection. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for this day. Thank you for who you are as our prophet, our priest, and our king, the one who has laid down his life for us, the one who speaks God's word, who is God's word to us, and the one who will reign forever and ever. May we be found in you tonight, always. May your Holy Spirit fill us with a sense of encouragement and peace and power, who we are in you, who we are by your blood, your people. We will reign with you forever and ever, our prophet, our priest, and our king of kings. It's in your name we pray, and we praise you tonight. Amen.
Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.